Let him win. And if you read this and you're going, this is weird, I don't understand, know that this is about the victory of God over evil. God will only give Satan enough leash to hang himself on it. He will not give him enough leash to let him run amok. And if there was no leash, if God was not in this dialogue, think about what Satan would be doing. Oh, he'd be running all over the place. He'd be rampaging. Job wouldn't just have lost his family and his wealth like we learned about last week. He would have lost so much more. And Satan has no victory. So that's part one. That's the context. We need to know this. We need to see that God is in charge. God is making this wager on his terms. And now we need to talk about the wager. Now, in the New Living Translation, look with me. Verse 1-9 says this. God introduces Job, which by the way, if you read this and you heard Job talk, God talking so nicely about Job and you just kind of thought, God, you're setting him up. Like, what are you doing here? Don't ever talk about me like that. Please don't talk about me like that to Satan. You need to hang in there because there's more to come. Satan replied to the Lord, yes, but Job has good reason to fear God. So God is basically saying, Job is an exemplary human being. He is doing awesome stuff for me. He is faithful to me. And Satan doesn't argue with him. What he says, what he splits, what he plants the seed is, well, Job's not really doing that to be a good guy. Job's not doing that because he loves you, God. In the NRSV translation, it's a rhetorical question. Does Job fear God for nothing? It's a great turn of the phrase. It's like when Satan comes on the scene in Genesis and he says, did God really say don't eat of the fruit of that tree. He's planting these seeds of doubt. He's sowing the split. Does Job fear God for nothing? And God is not surprised by this. God's sitting there going like, I've seen your playbook, man. I know what you're going to try to do. I love how the message translation expands on this. Look at this with me. Satan retorted. And when you say the word retorted, you have to kind of snort a little bit like, huh, Satan retorted. Huh. So you think, so do you think Job does all of that, all this worship of you, all this faithfulness. Does he do this out of the sheer goodness of his heart? <laughs> no one ever had it so good. You pamper him like a pet. Make sure nothing bad ever happens to him or his family or his possessions. And you bless everything he does. He can't lose. God, Job is a kid in a candy store. And he's faithful to you because you keep giving him candy. Satan is saying to God, God, I bet you if you took away the candy, Job would turn his back on you in a minute. He's questioning his faithfulness. He's questioning the sincerity of his relationship with God. Make no mistake, if you have never had someone question the sincerity of your relationship with God, you will. Your suffering will force you to look at your relationship with Almighty God and say, oh man, if I believe this, this is where the rubber meets the road. And what's happening here is that God is elevating some faulty assumptions that are playing out in the text. There's two sets of them that I want to highlight really briefly. There's the faulty assumption that Satan's making and the faulty assumption that Job's wife is making. So in Job 1, 9 through 11, I know we just read this a moment ago, but look at how this translation puts it. You put a wall of protection around him and his home. You've made him prosper in everything he does. Look how rich he is. But reach out, take away everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. This translation puts forward what I think Job is, what Satan is really trying to attack. And that is this. God, Job loves you because of the things you give him. 
He loves you because of what you have provided for him. He doesn't love you out of a sincere, heartfelt commitment to you. He loves you because you're dangling a carrot in front of him. And in the ancient Near East, and honestly in most religious traditions today, this is still a valid critique of empty faith. This is the burden of religion that we talked about at the beginning. This is religion in a pejorative sense of the word, a empty, hollowed out faith. In most of the religious traditions of this time, and again, still to this day, there's this idea of a transactional relationship with your deity, with God. So, for example, in the time of Job, which we believe was written around the time of the patriarchs, Abraham, if you were a farmer and you wanted better rain, better weather for your crops, what did you go do? You approached the god or the goddess of weather, of farming, and you offered sacrifices, and you worshipped, and you showed fidelity to them, and then that deity supposedly would bless you. Now, modern people, thank goodness, we're over this way of thinking about religion, right? Like, we would never look at God in that way. But it's true. We do this now, and we do the opposite of it, right? When things are going great, we assume kind of a karmic mentality, and we go, well, things are going great in my life because I'm a great person. Good things should be happening to me. Conversely, when we have bad things happening to us, when we struggle, when we suffer, many of us in the quiet of our hearts start to go, I must have done something against God. I must deserve this. I, I, I think that's one of the sneakiest ways that Satan creeps into our souls. Is he tells us, it's your responsibility. You did something wrong. This is a faulty assumption that Satan is making. It's a failed assumption to his argument because it has nothing to do with the faith proclaimed by Jesus Christ. Nothing. Jesus Christ never said to his disciples, look, scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. It could never work. The cross of Christ could never work if it's a transactional relationship. Jesus said things about the faith that he proclaimed that are actually contrary to this. Jesus said things like, take up your cross and follow me. He said, leave your father and mother. He said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. He said these things because he knew that the people who followed him, his church, would need to be reminded. As I need to be reminded this week, and I pray that you are reminded now, this is a relationship. And this is about grace. And the argument that Satan is making is based on the idea that there is no grace, that there is simply getting stuff from God. And Job's wife doesn't know much better. This is what she says in this very brief dialogue with Job. By the way, verse 8 has got to be one of the just nastiest descriptions ever, but it is so appropriate to what suffering feels like. Job scraped his skin, just opens up these sores with a piece of broken pottery as he sat among the ashes. The ashes of what? Oh, the ashes of the life he used to have, of the livestock and the wealth and the family members that he's about to bury because they've been killed. He is literally sitting in the rubble of his life. And his wife, whose timing is perfect, pulls up in their minivan, hops out, looks at what's happening, and says to him, are you still trying to maintain your integrity? Curse God and die. Her faulty assumption is this. Same faulty assumption that was made by the neighbors of Zechariah and Elizabeth in Luke chapter 1. We talked about this last uh, Advent season oh, something bad is happening to you? You must have done something to offend God. You better get right with God. 
There is no reason for you to have experienced this suffering unless you had done something wrong. So just get really honest and just talk to God about it. Like, just come clean, Job. Fess up. And that's a faulty assumption, that God is just simply punishing Job. We know because we've seen the backstory, God's not punishing Job for anything. Job is completely innocent. It is Satan trying to intervene and prove a point that he's not going to make. Assuming causality, assuming that there is a need to explain what is happening is actually something that we need to steer clear of as we look at the book of Job. Because it is a modern assumption. It is an assumption based on the principles of the Enlightenment that will not hold water when you're in the thick of your suffering. Think about this. If you lost someone that you loved, if you've gone through a deep, tragic period in your life, And someone came up to you and said, why do you think God's punishing you? What did you do wrong? You lost your job. You lost pregnancy. You lost somebody you loved. It must be your fault. What did you do that for? I mean, talk about just having your guts squeezed out, right? Like, that would be an awful thing to say to someone. And yet, I think that's what the enemy wants us to believe. And I believe that's the false assumption that is being made here. And thank God for this. We have a preview of the gospel of Jesus Christ in this text in the ways that Job responds to his suffering. So let's look at that very briefly before we wrap up here. This is at the very end of Job uh, chapter 1. This is after he has lost all of his wealth, all of his possessions. His children have been killed. Job stood up and tore his robe in grief. This was an ancient way of showing grief, was to tear your clothes, shave your head, the things that he does. This would have been appropriate for someone in mourning. Then he shaved his head and he fell to the ground to worship. He said, I came naked from my mother's womb and I will be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I had and the Lord has taken it away. Praise the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin by blaming God. Now, here's what modern people like to do. We like to focus on the Lord has taken it away and go, God, why did you do that? That's wrong. No. Not if God is God and we are not. Not if the earlier part of the passage is true. I came naked from my mother's womb and will be naked when I leave. I didn't come in with any of this stuff that God has given to me. None. Job knows that none of that stuff is his. It is a gift from God. And he knows that he will have none of that stuff when he leaves this earth, and so it can't hold power over him. It can't become an idol to him. Job loses his stuff, but he stays faithful. And then in this end of the second passage, Job 2.10, Job replied to his wife, who is chewing him out for not being faithful, you talk like a foolish woman. Should we accept only good things from the hand of God and never anything bad? So in all this, Job said nothing wrong. Accept only good things, never anything bad. What kind of relationship would you be in if you expected the person that you're in that relationship with to only tell you good things, to never, ever, ever breathe a bad word at you? Honestly, I was thinking about it this morning. I think this is one of the problems that celebrities face, is they surround themselves, they are surrounded by this cadre, these sort of hangers on, their entourage, if you will, and those folks are not there to tell them the truth. Those folks are there to perpetuate the myth that celebrity breathes into human beings, which is, you're a great person, you're awesome, the world is your oyster. This 
moment of honesty with God is powerful. Because what Job is pointing toward is a relationship. It's a relationship. He knows that if he is going to be in relationship with God, sometimes it's going to be messy and hard and difficult. And frankly, any human endeavor or any human relationship that is going to be hard and messy and difficult is worth it. Don't give me perfection. Give me the good stuff. Give me, give me the richness. Give me the depth. Give me the hard, kind of tough nuts to break together. I could never turn to my wife at breakfast and say, please only tell me good things today. That would be manipulative, it would be disingenuous, and she would have to lie to me. That's completely unfair. What Job is reflecting is this reality that when we are in relationship with Jesus Christ, we have to take the good and the bad. We have to take Jesus encouraging us, breathing life into us when we need it, rescuing us when we are down, and we have to take his challenge, his rebuke, and his hard words sometime to take up our cross and walk. We have to take both. And I'm saddened by the ways that I see the church not proclaiming this, only proclaiming the goodness of God, only proclaiming sunshine, only talking about the good stuff. That's not helpful to people who are suffering. That's not helpful to people who are in pain. So how do we wrap this up today? We see the incredible character of Job in this passage. We see the nefarious attempts of Satan to drag him down, but he won't do it because he's got, better, he's got a better mindset. He understands the assumptions that are making what his wife says wrong because he knows the faithfulness of God. God shows his sovereignty in today's passage. He shows us Satan is not in charge. He is not victorious. He does not have enough leash to run rampant over us. And we see this beautiful truth that the faith that Job proclaims is a faith that is built on relationship not on servitude, not on any of these other things. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. One of my favorite books is The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. And if you're not familiar with it, it is this wonderful uh, narrative. It's letters written between a senior devil, someone who is well-versed in the ways of the enemy, and a younger devil, someone that is not as well-versed in the ways of the, of the enemy. And this book is all about the younger devil's attempts to seduce and tear away somebody who's trying to be faithful to God. It's basically like a window into the playbook that the enemy tries to use to disrupt human life. And it's so funny because you read through the book and whenever they, the, these two devils, refer to the enemy, they're referring to God. But they're talking about their enemy, the one that is trying to disrupt their work. And I believe that this quote that I'm going to share with you, I think C.S. Lewis had Job in mind when he wrote this. So this is the senior demon writing this to the younger demon. The senior demon says this, Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause, the cause of evil, is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will, to do God's will, looks around upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished, when he's sitting there scraping his sores with a shard of pottery and asks why he's been forsaken and still obeys. Job will ask, where are you, God? Why have you forsaken me? Job will get to that point. We're not there yet, but he'll get there. And still he chooses to obey. 
still he chooses to lean into this relationship of trust and love that he has built up with the God of the universe. May we follow his example. Please join me in prayer. Father, thank you that we can be in your word today with kids. Thank you that we can all learn. Thank you that it's okay to not know why things happen sometimes. Job never finds out about this dialogue, and it's honestly not important to his story to have known that. It's okay when we are maybe in a place like Job, and we can just feel like it's all falling down, because you will not fall down. You will not fail your people. We may not be able to see your grace. We may not be able to feel it as clearly as we would like, but it's there. So, Lord, help us to hear your truth in this text. And as we have a brief time to discuss together, would you use our words for your glory? We ask in Jesus' name.